Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. It should be an excellent school in every community. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Good Schools for All. I'm Scott Lewis. I'm Laura Cohn. And uh, we're back. Second one. We're doing this. Here we are. Uh, So I think I've mentioned my... uh, uh, you know, I think uh, this a lot of what we talk about in, is is going to be based on me because again, that's the most <laughs> important thing. But but no, my my son's going through you know this transition into school, right? Mm-hmm. He's literally in transitional kindergarten, and and uh, and so uh, you know a lot of these concepts I've been writing about and thinking about for for years are <laughs> coming really real for me. And um, I was I was kind of stunned when he started school. That the very first week, and until uh, every week after that, he, by the way, has a great teacher, uh, uh, and I want to make, uh, uh, Miss Stewart is, I think she's listening, She's she's been listening to podcasts, hello, Miss Stewart, thank you, he's, my son loves you, <laughs> everything's great. Yeah. But uh, uh, he's, the first thing he got, I'll never forget, was a packet of homework, uh, and and he's, he's five, and it, it, school was this very jarring experience for him right because he you know it's 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 a long day and then come home and we realized like he had a good 20 30 minutes of homework 20 30 minutes because he was wiggling around not exactly focusing (laughs) yeah and you know he he writes a letter wrong and he would throw his pencil i mean it was just it was and it was just like I, i we really felt like we were like bludgeoning him you know, even longer, even as he was going through this, to yeah. keep doing these things, and uh, and it was hard. It was uh, we were having a lot of trouble with it for a couple of weeks. Yeah, my son, who's now fifteen, also had homework, uh, not starting in kindergarten, but starting in first and second grade. Same deal. It was it was a source of a lot of um, anxiety and frustration for him, and uh, getting it done was a big problem. Our breakthrough came when the teacher said. You parents don't have to, you don't have to have anything to do with him getting it done. It's between me and your son. And everything just simmered down after that. But yeah. the question is, why are kids at that age doing homework? Is there any benefit to it? Yeah, so we asked them and, um, and their point was like, look, it's, we don't, we're not grading it. You know, your kid's not getting a grade. Um, the point is to teach them to do this, to, to, to be comfortable working on these skills over time at night on your own, that sort of thing. And I think I got to admit, like his writing is far more advanced than it was when he started. He's holding pencils. Well, he, his, 
you know, uh, there's one of the weird parts about some of these times, I can't even understand the instructions on these things. You know, it's like <laughs> there was a stack of coins, right? Five coins. And it's like, there's five here and there's five here and there's five here. And you're supposed to write, well, that's five, that's 10, that's 15, you know, going forward. I, I couldn't figure it, <laughs> it out. And I'm like, well, I think you need to keep writing multiples of five below that. And for traditional kindergarten, wow. Yeah, but his but his fives are really looking good. So yeah. maybe there's something to it. I no, think, I mean the question though shouldn't be are his fives getting better. The question is, would his fives have gotten better without the homework? Is the homework contributing to his improvement? And the research that I've looked at suggests that it isn't. That homework for children of that age doesn't give them any academic benefits at all. And this hypothesis that the education system clings on to that we're teaching them habits of home learning. I, I want them to ask themselves and look at the research and find out, do we need to instill these habits starting at age five or six or eight or nine? Or will we have equally good results or maybe even better results if we start getting kids in that habit later on when they're in middle school, for example? Yeah. And it, it really reinforces that idea that a lot of this education system is about sort of working these muscles, that it's not about necessarily, um, you know, making the kids learn the best. It's about making them ready for more school, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's like this, like, it's like this continual ramp up to doing well in school. Right. Which makes sense. I don't, I don't want to see Well, here until just... you realize that education is supposed to be about getting kids ready for life, not for school. That we've gotten a little bit lost right now thinking that the goal, for example, is high school graduation or even goal is college. It's not. The goal is to raise children, support children so that they can succeed in life, so they can make a, a livable wage, be happy, um, and be contributing members of society, which is, I love that Cindy Martin um, talks about the goals that way, but now we need to see if we can help schools to be designed to realize that. So Cindy Martin is the superintendent of San Diego Unified School District, maybe someday a guest on this show. I hope so. And uh, that's the topic this week, is, is the way things are, uh, especially for, uh, well, for students of all kinds, really. You know, what practices are we still doing, even at the very youngest of ages, that we could, uh, that we could morph, that we could evolve, that we could disrupt? And uh, we're very excited this week to have on the show Greg Whiteley, a filmmaker whose movie Most Likely to Succeed is uh, traveling the country right now for special screenings. And uh, he's the filmmaker that did the uh, documentary about Mitt Romney's campaign. He had inside access there. It was a great movie, by the way. It's on Netflix. I plan to watch it. Um, and, and, and he did this thing, Most Likely to Succeed. He lives in San Diego, and it was all about high tech high. And I think what's interesting to me is, you know, we were, we, uh, full disclosure, we applied to High Tech High and did not get in. And um, and one of the things that was very attractive about it was they were like, there's no homework. We don't, we don't, we think it's important for kids to uh, do other things at night, that this isn't, that these worksheets, that these things like that are, are not the way for them to progress and to learn. And so, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about High Tech High in this episode, a lot about uh, Greg's experience, his own child's experience, as, as that uh, helps set the scene uh, for the movie. And it's the same kind of malaise or struggle that I'm, I'm worried that I'm starting to see in my son. But, uh, uh, but also uh, just a, a really good, you know, um, story about disrupting the current model of education. And how would you describe that model? 
Well, the current model of education is, uh, I mean, the best way to bring it alive for people is to say whatever you experienced when you went to school, whether it was 10, 20, 30, or 50 years ago, it's pretty much the same now. Um, So classrooms of 28 to 40 kids, one teacher in front of them, in the middle and high school levels, the subjects are broken up into English, math, social studies, et cetera. And, And teachers are innovating in those contexts when that is the way they're um, school structured. They're able to innovate around the edges, but um, it's difficult with that structure to get to really profound changes. We do have schools in San Diego who are um, doing more than innovating around the edges, and I, I think we'll use this podcast to to elevate those and celebrate them here. Um, but it's it's harder. It's harder than it should be. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is described as the so-called Prussian model. Right, so this is the idea that back in the 1800s, um, the uh, Prussia, uh, which later, of course, became mostly Germany, um, innovated this way of sort of universally educating people along certain accepted subjects. Of uh, you know, you learn a certain level of math, you learn a certain level of blah blah blah, and and you break kids up according to grades and ages, and you break kids up uh, during the day in subject matters, so that there's each each subject matter gets its own attention. As you as you well know, growing up, you most likely had English, and then you had math, and then you had geography, and you had all these different things. And what uh, you know, what Greg is going to come on and talk about is high tech high's approach of like meshing on that all together. That you work on projects that have themselves some area of math and then some area of humanities and some, some uh, input from also the other subjects of, of, you know, science and and engineering and such. And so, yeah, the big idea is that it used to be somewhat important to convey the big body of knowledge. What was in, you know, some proportion of what was included in the encyclopedia Britannica into kids brains so that they could grow up and function in the world because they needed to be able to access that knowledge from their own brains these days, we don't need that. We have phones where we can access a lot of the knowledge. It doesn't mean you don't need some fundamental concepts, understanding, um, and uh, and sort of uh, context for the world. You still do need knowledge. Knowledge isn't obsolete, but uh, in order to prepare kids for what we can foresee of the future, we need them to have other skills like creativity, stamina, problem solving, collaboration, and the the Prussian model is not so good at conveying those kinds of skills. Yeah, so that model was brought to the United States. It's it's uh, basically um, you know legend that uh, it was Horace Mann, uh, a, uh, um, a politician turned education maven in Massachusetts who brought this style over and helped uh, spread it throughout the United States. We actually have in San Diego a Horace Mann Middle School uh, in City Heights. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it's one of the worst performing. I remember almost a decade ago when that school lost 12 of its 15 teachers in mm-hmm. one year of turnover. Uh, 70% of, of parents who could send their students to Horace Mann uh, choose not to. Uh, they live in the area, and they say that we're, we're avoiding that. It's the f- uh, fifth worst in the district, as far as that goes. Uh, so, uh, kind of a um, you know analogy to the to the struggling system. Is there a you know is it is it this lack of motivation? Is it this lack of flexibility that some of the teachers have? I don't know. Or is it just uh, 
Is it just, uh, you know, all kinds of factors involving poverty and other things like that? This is the kind of theme we hope to go over uh, over these coming months of, you know, how do we make sure that parents in, in City Heights like that have access to the best education possible? Uh, and how do we make sure that the best ideas get spread as well? Yeah. Let's see if we can figure out how the legacy of Horace Mann is going to get uh, carried forward. Right. So stay tuned for that interview with Greg Wrightley. But first, our number of the week. So our number of the week this week is 503,848, and that is the number of K-12 students in public education, uh, TK-12 actually, transitional kindergarten to 12th grade students we have in San Diego County. And the reason that that is a number that I try to recall and keep in mind is because that's more students than 20 other states. Right here in our county, we're bigger than Rhode Island. That doesn't surprise you. We're bigger than Delaware. That doesn't surprise you either. More kids than Wyoming, more kids than Montana. There are a lot of states that are that have fewer kids than us. So when we talk about improving schools, improving education in our county, we're talking about a state magnitude problem in front of us and a state magnitude opportunity. All right. Thank you. Our What's Working for the Week. So what's working is Del Lago Academy. Del Lago Academy is a three-year-old high school in the Escondido High School District. It was um, established in a brand new building that was built for purpose for the Del Lago Academy. And it focuses on biomedical sciences and health sciences for students. It uses project-based learning. Um, it uses work-based learning, gets kids out into the workplace. It integrates technology in a really wonderful way. So Del Lago is a super example of a, a regular public school that's figured out how to deliver really innovative, inspiring education for kids. And when you go to that campus, and I hope you'll have a chance to do that, you'll see something that doesn't look traditional, doesn't look like the Prussian model, and the kids are really um, on fire. Now, sorry, is it a charter? It is not. It's a regular, it's a school of choice, I guess I would say. Like a magnet kind of thing? Kind of, yeah. It's a school that kids in, in Give me that the word that it fits into, into yeah, Laura. Yeah, I don't know the category. <laughs> All, right. All right, we're going to get to that interview with Greg Whiteley, but first I have Mario Coran, our education writer, wanted to ask him about learning English as a second language and how that's changing at San Diego Unified School District. All right, Mario Coran joins me in studio right now. Mario is our education investigative reporter. He has a really interesting job. He has to uh, balance sometimes. He does a lot of investigative work about the board members of the school board uh, in San Diego Unified, but he also does, uh, uh, you know, stories about uh, particular issues we deal with, like uh, like how many people are, or many students are prepared to graduate under the new requirements. Um, but also then he has to get into sometimes uh, academic and, and you know, educational issues themselves about how people are learning and how, that, how changes at the budget level are actually impacting um, some students and teachers and educators. So uh, you, uh, you talked to a student at Kearney High School in San Diego, uh, Angel Solorzano. Uh, tell me about Angel. So uh, I met Angel last year uh, when I toured Kearney High School, and 
uh, Angel, the the principal there, her name is Ana Diaz Buz, um, brought in a, a few students for me to meet just as an example of what things were happening, the great things that are happening up at Kearney High School. And she brought in Angel um, because he's got a particularly interesting story. He came to her high school from a, a city in Mexico, um, didn't speak English when he had arrived there, um, but she took a different approach. So in, in a lot of schools, uh, English learners, as they're considered, students that don't speak English, when they show up uh, at school, they, they usually get stuck for at least a year, maybe a couple of years, those can stretch on, in classes where they primarily speak English, practice English. Um, when they've passed on and made enough credit, they might be taking they might be taking basic courses. But the trouble is, those students, English learning students, can get stuck in those classes without access to the college going classes that their peers have. So it's it's a challenge, a remarkable challenge that the educators face is how to prepare students in both the academic content and how to help them learn English. So what did Kearney do? So with Kearney, Kearney is really a fascinating case because they're. They approach the same problem through more, I guess, holistic view. They don't necessarily see a student as an English learner with one unique need. I mean, they look at English learners as like they would any other student who's struggling to to get on the same page, right? So they could they could approach an English learner in, in some of the same with some of the same supports that they use for other students. So they really prepare teachers to help students like like Angel. Um, they include lots of in-class activities where the students are pra- having an opportunity to practice English, and they're really thoughtful about, uh, she seemed really thoughtful, and the teachers seemed thoughtful too, about uh, making it an inviting place for students to talk, right? Because if you're not speaking English, you have that sort of uh, shyness to you that can keep you in the corner. And Yeah, you might understand things, but unless you practice saying them, you're not going to get better at it, right? It's right. like anything. Right, exactly. And if you talk to a lot of teachers who've had English learners in their classes, and by the way, English learners are, are probably the single most... Uh, uh, concerning subgroup when it comes to test scores, because every year they're way below their peers. Yeah, you have an interesting stat in here. You say 75% of seniors this year in the San Diego Unified School District are on track to graduate, but only 20% of the English learners can say the same. R- right. I mean, and, and every year the numbers are, are, are fairly concerning. I thought what stood out to me is that when you compare English learners to students with special needs, I believe the grad rates for English learners are is actually lower than students with special needs. And for me, that just that's just stuck out because those are two two areas uh, where you would expect the scores to to be low, and um, they just they, they meet that every year. Mm-hmm. So, what is the approach? Because uh, one of the first stories you did here, or, or soon after you started, was a change that the district made where they actually got rid of. Was it because of budget cuts? They got rid of specific English language teachers at almost every school, right? Right. So a couple of years ago, they, they did. They, they slashed the, the number of, of teachers whose primary job it was to support the English learners. Um, so those teachers are still there, but there are fewer of them. So now they're sort of dispatched in teams, and they go off to a school and, 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 and help the teachers design their curriculum. So that's just one of the tasks that they have. So they, are they approaching things? Is there an actual strategy behind what they're going to do to get uh, students up to par? Yeah, so that's been a really tough thing for me to try to pin down. Is There's been a strategy, but it's been unclear as to what that strategy was. And so now we see some of that, that, that taking shape. Um, the strategies are going to vary from cluster to cluster. 
Um, and part of that's understandable, right? Because you have a cluster in one area of town has more English learners than they would um, in La Jolla or Scripps Ranch. So they're, they're, their approach should be different. So they're taking a more... Uh, 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 a cluster approach. To so school. they do the do the actual schools and clusters have flexibility, or just they just different approaches for each one? Uh, yeah, I think there's both. I okay. think the idea is to to give the school some sort of flexibility and autonomy uh, for them to meet their their students' needs, however they best can. Well, what what should we look for next? What what might happen now? There is a, a new report um, about to be released. I believe it's on uh, the the number of students. Uh, on track to meet A through G graduation requirements. Um, we should look at how well English learners are doing within that and how many are on track to graduate for the year 2016. And I think if the numbers are are low, as a number of people anticipate they will be, the thing that's really going to just feed a, hopefully will feed a robust conversation about what we need to do moving forward. Mario Coran, uh, my favorite Voice of San Diego uh, education investigative reporter, that uh, does some great work. Thanks for joining. All right, I'm I'm really excited to have in the studio in the in the great Voice of San Diego podcast studio filmmaker Greg Whiteley, who directed uh, the movie Mitt. You might remember uh, uh, documenting uh, Mitt Romney's campaign through the ups and and, and inevitable down on that. Oh, not inevitable. I guess it was it, it happened, and it was a very emotional, uh, fascinating movie. But also uh, has now produced a movie called Most Likely to Succeed, which is about education. Uh, it's about, in particular, high tech high in San Diego and uh, and its approach to education. And it, it's it's really good. It's not out yet, but uh, uh, Greg is is a San Diegan, lives in Point Loma. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're very excited. Uh, honored you could come. Uh, I I was really interested in the piece uh, from the from the very get go, obviously, and and you made it personal. Did you? What made you decide to do? Before we get into that, what made you decide to do the movie? Well, I've always been interested in education, and I my second feature length documentary that that I'd made was set in the world of high school debate. And mm -hmm. that's what first got me interested, I think, just from, um, I don't know, from a, uh, an aesthetic standpoint, like this is a place where you could make a lot of films. And in fact, there's been a lot of great education documentaries. I didn't really feel like I needed to make one, but I was interested in the topic. And then, of course, when I had two kids and when they became six years old and, and started off in the public school system in L.A., I became really, really interested in education. <laughs> And I, about four or five years after that, I, I met a man named Ted Dintersmith, who had partnered up with a, a man named Tony Wagner. And they had both spent a lot of time, uh, a good portion of their careers, thinking about education. And they were ready to do a documentary. And 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 then we were off. Uh, the decision to make it personal, um, I just I, 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 that's the only way I know how to make yeah. movies. I mean, there's lots of ways that you can attack. Uh, this project or ta attack this subject matter. Um, and just for me, because it was so personal, it just made sense to, to begin it from, from there. Greg, I was lucky enough to see a screening and the fact that you made it personal and then also added some personal narratives of some students, it really made the education issues that you were raising come alive and feel real to people. Oh, good. Good. Well, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's get some just a couple more bio pieces, and then we'll we'll just introduce how you introduced it. So, what made you move to San Diego? Well, in fact, 
we were living up in Northern California, mm-hmm. and we moved there largely for the schools. We, we'd done a little bit of research, and it turns out where my wife was raised, they had schools that if you were to log on to some of those school websites, their schools were ranked very, very high. Yeah. I've since learned that those rankings are, are based almost exclusively on standardized test scores. Mm-hmm. And you know, even if I did know that at the time, I wouldn't, that wouldn't have raised any red flags with me. I would have thought, well, how else to rate a school than by a standardized test score? So we thought we were doing our kids a huge favor. Um, I started making, when I finished MIT, I began making this documentary and my travels Tony Wagner said, look, I've got a number of schools that are doing some really interesting things. I want to send you to all of them, but my favorite is in San Diego. Uh, and it was winter, and so that made a lot of sense <laughs> to start there. And I I came down and filmed, and I was just blown away at oh, so High Tech High. you moved here after or starting the movie? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I we were living up in Northern California, and we, we moved here. Um, I would say about two thirds of the way through production, we just decided mm-hmm. we really we were blown away by this school and we wanted our kids to have a chance to go here, so we moved. All right. So the scene the scene with your daughter is from your Northern California original home. That's right. Well, let's mm-hmm. set the scene first okay, of all. Good. So so uh, she you you describe how you're, you you see her come home. She's struggling. She did, she's not excited to go to school. And then uh, this particular part that we're highlighting, uh, your your wife is meeting with uh, your daughter's teacher, who at this point, your daughter is in what grade? She's in fourth at this point. So she's in fourth grade. She's struggling a little bit. Uh, your wife and, and her are meeting with the teacher, and, uh, and the teacher is trying to give her a pep talk because your wife has communicated to her that it's just not going well and she doesn't seem to like it. And, uh, and this is what the teacher says. And my daughter is hit for the first time. It's really hard for her. Truthfully, you're building your character right now. You're building that perseverance and that sense of, I want to I do my best. Now freeze. Look at that face right there. I know that face. That face is saying... This is bullshit. This whole thing called school is bullshit. Now, later that night, after this conference at home, I'll tell her that school seems meaningless now, but later, when she's applying to college or when she's looking for a job, she'll understand what this was all for. She needs to take this seriously now because one day... She'll see that this will all make sense. But after spending two years working on this film, I now worry these things that I've told my daughter and my son are a lie. The idea of enduring the drudgery of standardized tests, traditional homework, lectures, will build the kind of character in them that will one day lead to a happier life may no longer be true. I think uh, that's obviously a very powerful entry or intro to the discussion. And if I were to try to identify a theme or a moral of the movie, it's this disconnect between school and life. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, And that is something that never occurred to me before I began making this movie. There's this really great scene in an episode of Louis C.K.'s series, Louis, Mm -hmm. where he attends uh, with a number of other parents this 
kind of PTA yeah. meeting. And, and they're all kind of concerned about this issue like, hey, is there, what can we do to improve our schools? Our kids don't seem to be engaged. And it comes to Louis, and Louis just says, well, you know, it's school, right? <laughs> I mean, school, school sucks, right? Yeah. It's supposed to suck. And that's kind of how I felt. I was sitting in that parent-teacher conference, and I, when I was there live, it felt like a perfectly normal teacher conference. What she was telling my daughter seemed perfectly valid. It wasn't until it. I got home. Yeah, just this was my daughter's fault. And yeah. you need to be more engaged. And yeah, it may seem like school is really boring, but really it's a test of your character. And even though I'm asking you to memorize the phone book, and it might seem really difficult to memorize the phone book, the, F, the, the attempt to memorize the phone book is going to build the kind of muscles that will allow you to succeed later. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got home and started looking through that footage that I just realized, and I saw that look on my daughter's face, she's not being fooled. She's listening and she's being compliant and she's even being polite in that meeting. But I know that she's leaving that meeting thinking, oh, I, I must not be smart or academic or at the very least school's not for me. Yeah. There's this idea that it's like this, uh, it's like a training. You're like, you're training muscles that you'll end up using as opposed to, you know, doing the activity that you might you need to do in the future. Well, the it? argument, yeah, because it's really difficult for teachers to sell kids on the idea that we'll take algebra, for instance. And this, I love bringing this one up because there will always be a number of people in an audience that will say, algebra is really important. It teaches you how to think. There's fundamentals of logic contained in algebra, and there's all kinds of applications of it outside of, of, of your high school uh, in real life as you grow up. If that's true, we are all in huge amounts of trouble because 90% of the adult population could not do basic algebra today. They have completely forgotten it. If there are applications to algebra, nobody is actually applying those applications. Nobody's taking advantage of it. So what we attempt to ask, one of the questions we attempt to ask in this film is why is there such a huge gap between what we teach in school and the types of skills that are developed in school, chiefly the ability to follow instructions, to sit passively as a teacher lectures and spells out facts, and then grades those students on their ability to spit back those facts. Those are the skills that are currently being developed, almost on steroids in our current school system. Why is there such a huge gap between those kinds of skills and the kinds of skills that are actually needed in the 21st century to survive and thrive? Yeah, you do. You do a good job in the film of putting some historical context on it. You make the case that I buy into that as technology has grown and our access to information has become more and more ubiquitous or easy, that that approach to education has become more and more obsolete over time. Yeah, I think there was a time in which following instructions and learning to sit still for long periods of time and uh, stay focused on, on minute tasks and even the ability to separate out subjects and focus for 45 minutes on exclusively science and then 45 minutes exclusively on history. These are things that we all take for granted, but the, these were constructs of the Industrial Revolution, the the very idea of separating out subjects and teaching them one at a time, that happened for the first time in the mid to late 1800s, and they were specifically brought to the United States to help train factory workers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, obviously that, that, uh, uh, that story is, is a very powerful one, and you, you, you'll illustrate it really well. Uh, and, I, and I looked, and it seems like that sort of 
uh, story and, and how it's told is actually pretty ubiquitous in this world of challenging education to uh, to be better, to reinvent itself, to be more creative. There was a, I tried, I looked for some pushback to that. I just wanted to like, I wanted a defense of what, uh, this is called the Prussian model, right? This, this subjects, you know, different subjects, different grades, that sort of model of teaching. Well, it was invented uh, to instill obedience in right. Prussian troops right. so that they could better defend themselves against Napoleon. Right. That's where this curriculum came from. And then it helped facilitate the Industrial Revolution, as you talked about. Mm-hmm. It helped. Uh, it was very egalitarian, too. It provides a, a sort of basis for everybody to get educated, right? Y- yes. You could take uh, a farm boy in Ohio, and you could take a prep school boy in New York, and you could give them the exact same curriculum. No matter where they lived in the United States, they could be expected to learn this base amount. They, you could give them basic math instruction, basic reading and writing instruction. And then you could also give them a basic tutorial on what it means to be a U.S. citizen. And for people like Andrew Carnegie at the time, back in the the late 1800s, early 1900s, that was very important. But what it really, in essence, did is it allowed a factory owner, uh, an owner of a company, to build multiple factories across the United States and to be able to handpick they would be able to pick workers. They could build in any U.S. city, any U.S. city, and they would count, they would be able to count on an educated workforce to, at the very least, read and follow basic instructions. You know, I think there's a little mythology in there, though, because the idea that it was egalitarian doesn't take into account that we just allowed one third of our kids not to finish high school, and that was okay at that time. So, mm. uh, and now it's not okay anymore. We've got most of the jobs of the future, 65% by one estimate, will require some kind of degree or certificate after high school. And so it maybe wasn't so egalitarian in the past, but that was okay because our economy could absorb those those folks who didn't acquire a, a high school degree or some kind of... Um, yeah, if you could course. read and write, which was basically accomplished by, at least by middle school, you could drop out of high school and still get a decent middle-class job. And yeah. the middle-class income back at the time, there was not this huge gap between a middle-class income and a high-class income, a white-collar income. Now, of course, that gap is enormous. It's right. very difficult to provide for a family on a, on a middle-class income. So, like I said, I looked for some... I wanted to find a defense of this style, right? Because the theory is, well, this is the way it's been now for 100 years, and maybe we should rethink it, right? Yeah. And so I, I found this... The best essay I found was from a, a woman named Audrey Waters. And her point was that um, it's a lot more complicated than this. Uh, she says, nevertheless, industrialization is often touted as as both the model and rationale for the early public education system. And by extension, it's part of the narrative that now contends that schools are no longer equipped to address the needs of a post-industrial world. Her point being like, this is a story that a lot of people who want to change education are telling uh, to sort of demand that we're done with the factory style of, you know, workers. So we need to move on. Is this, uh, is it a, is it a, you know, an easy story to tell to get something across, or did it? Uh, I, I mean, did you find any 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 hassles in 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 that narrative? Well, the film premiered at Sundance. I think since that time, there have been um, the film is on tour right now. I think there must be over at this point over five hundred screenings. I don't think we've had anybody in particular push back on that point. Uh, I, I what was the woman's name who wrote it? Audrey Waters. I, I, I guess my question to Audrey would be, I, I you know, I I don't really care why our schools are the way yeah. they are. I have plenty of so- sources to sure. back me up that this is where sure. we got our current school system. But let's say that let's just assume for the sake of argument that she's right. 
Well, what is she proposing? Is she actually arguing that our school system is doing just fine and no. producing kids for the 21st century? Because yeah. I can, it, it's not. I think her point is is along a lot of pushback for for reformers, which is that you're just trying to you're just trying to infuse schools with market ideology and and engineering ideology as opposed to like and sort of take away some of this uh, some of this. Uh, uh, teacher power, you know, that the, 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 the labor force has the power right now, which I want to introduce your second clip on this, because I think this was a good point uh, about, uh, so you, you bring in high tech high, the music turns from more dour to more hopeful. And, uh, and here's your introduction to high tech high. High tech high is a school in San Diego. 50% of the kids who attend high tech high are considered low income. To attend, kids enter a lottery and are selected according to zip code. As a result, their demographic makeup duplicates that of other schools in their area. It's a public school, so they get public funds from the state in order to operate, but they actually get slightly less money per pupil and slightly less per teacher to do so. There are a number of things that make High Tech High unique. For instance, there are no bells here. The day is not divided up in class periods. Classes are not divided up into subjects. Instead, subjects are combined. Also, they hire teachers on one-year contracts, and in exchange, teachers are free to teach any way they want. Let me repeat that. What teachers teach, how much they teach, is entirely up to them. So you were really struck by that. Yeah, I I think when I first saw it, I thought, this is a recipe for disaster. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, you're going to have ninth graders on one end of the building teaching, I don't know, they're spending, they may spend, they can, in, in theory, they can spend six weeks on one battle of the Civil War while you have a whole bunch of ninth graders in the other end of the building and they're um, spending three months on a science theorem. I mean, and I, I, I asked myself, are you kidding me? I mean, there's no uniformity. Where's the, where's the fairness in that? Are, one, are some kids getting a better education than others? And what if you have a really bad teacher? And this seems like chaos. What if a teacher shows up and doesn't feel like teaching anything? What's policing this? This is just, it was so different than how I was raised to believe what a good school ought to operate, right? There were just appeared to be no standards, and, and if you ask him this, I, you ask, I asked the, the head of the school, Ben Daly, look, it appears to me that you do not have a uniform set of standards. You go, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just sort of cop to it. Well, obviously, as, as you point out in the film, High Tech High has a lot of, uh, you, know, you know, results that they point to. 98% of the graduates go on to college. 86% are either, um, uh, you know, have either graduated or gone on even beyond that. Um, 35% of high tech high graduates are first generation college students and 30%, uh, enter some sort of math or science field. Uh, how, how much time did you spend there? We were there off and on for a year and a half. So, um, and obviously when I moved to San Diego, I was able to spend much more, a lot more time there. And I, I spend even now I'm, I'm, I'm probably on campus two or three days a week. There was one point, uh, that you, um, I think glossed over a little bit that I wanted to get your reaction. So you point out that it gets less money 
uh, per student per teacher. But it does get a significant amount of philanthropy, just uh, in itself, $30 million in 2013. Did you get the sense that this is, I mean, this is the big question that I have. Can we scale this out if it requires so much, you know, private investment to, to support as well? Well, that's still taking into account, if you were to talk to Larry Rosenstock, um, they take that endowment um, that they receive from either Bill Gates, that this was one of the Gates Foundation's favorite schools, and, and they gave them a pile of money. Uh, Erwin Jacobs um, mm-hmm. has underwritten and, and given them, a, you know, a pile of money. Well, they take that money initially, the, the, the first endowment that came, and they actually built the campus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this first one was in Point Loma, Liberty Station. And then as other money has come in, it's not as though they've just taken that and built out the school and 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 they have they're swimming in resources. They live off of what they get per student from the state, just like a public school does, a regular public school. They are a public school, they're just a charter school. And then they take that down and they build another campus. So now they have eleven different I think I'm getting that right. I think they have eleven different high school campuses that have been built with the new money that's been given to them. And on average, their per building cost is less than what the state gives to build a new public school. So they are, in essence, operating with less money. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I got out of that as well is, um, is, you know, so because there's no subjects, because there's no tests necessarily in the same style, uh, the, a lot of this is is uh, determined, a lot of the evaluation of students' progress is done by this sort of public performance and exhibition, right? So uh, the humanities class might put on a play, the engineering or math class might put on a, you know, a, a, a design of a project. Um, one of the questions I had, though, is there, there a protagonist in your film was this kid that was really stressed out about this whole thing, right? He was He was struggling, he was working overtime trying to get it done, and he actually didn't get it done. Do, do you think there's a there's a different set of pressures that might be also sort of uh, problematic for uh, a high school like that, where you know being on stage, performing, exhibiting your work is 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 maybe even worse in some cases than than sort of the rote standardized testing? Well, I think a lot of people will take a look at a project based curriculum, and they'll think to themselves because there's there's a lot of projects that require collaboration and and very non-traditional tools, people go, oh, well, how nice. What a much gentler environment where kids don't have to stress and, and the, you know, the, the piles of homework and, and all, all those burdens have been lifted. And uh, I have found that to be not the case. I have found that kids that I've observed at High Tech High stress a lot more. I mean, I saw the one kid that you're bringing up he was giving up his Thanksgiving Day break, Thanksgiving break. They get, I think, I think they get four days off that week. Well, he gave all of that up uh, to come in and, and, and to work on his project. He yeah, was giving he worked up, in the summer, too. Yeah, yeah. Working through the summer, working through the yeah. winter. And, and we, we filmed him a couple of times really, really late at night in his apartment. Uh, while, you know, long as his parents had gone to bed and he's still up working on his projects. I don't think, if you're just asking me personally, I need to be careful. I'm, I'm no education sure. expert. I'm just simply somebody that observed a handful of, of good and bad schools over the course of two years. But what I, what I, th- I don't think stress is the problem. I think stress, um, I think it's, it's unhealthy to stress over the wrong things. To stress over a couple of points on an SAT or to stress over a uh, uh, AP history final, 
which by the way, I just find to be an absolutely insane. We cite a couple of studies in yeah. which two to three weeks after these kids ace their ACT or their, their AP final, they can't even pass it. Yeah. So what was the point of stressing so much? We're, we're in these kids at High Tech High that are stressing. They're stressing because they know their parents, their friends, their friends' parents, members of the community are going to go show up and actually see what they've been working on for the last four weeks. And they want yeah. that rush of finishing a project, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's accountability, but it's the right kind of accountability. And it comes from self-motivation. That's what seems that's right. most powerful to it rather than being externally motivated. It's really internal motivation. And that's what's going to carry – that's what should carry these students to success later on is because they've found that and then they can re reapply it. That's a really great point. You're right. There wasn't – there weren't parents that I could see that were holding their feet to the fire. In fact, most kids were having to swim upstream against their parents in order to carve out free time on the weekend to work on these projects they were so passionate about. And you certainly didn't have teachers that were holding their feet to the fire. They were there encouraging. They were standing by. They were reminding them of the date. But they were largely – If you here's what's interesting. If you go to a classroom at High Tech High, what's bizarre is how long it takes you to find the teacher – it, it, it's just it, in a lot of these classrooms, especially as they're leading up to exhibition night, it looks like chaos and it is a little chaotic. And the, and the teachers are off in the corner somewhere or they're sitting down just fielding an occasional question as a kid comes to ask how to use a particular piece of software or to how to use the laser cutter. Yeah. Um, but they're largely hands off. All right. Then. Let's talk about another teacher. So one of the other teachers you talked to uh, was a math teacher in Colorado who was frustrated uh, because of the standardized tests and the way math had been taught and the way he was expected to teach it. And there was a really interesting moment when you reveal that he got pushback, not from the education system, but from his best students. This is Vince, a math teacher from Douglas County, Colorado, who was worried that the math he was spending a semester teaching was disposable. As a result, he made some fairly bold changes. He even went to High Tech High for some ideas, all in hopes of creating a curriculum which focused on math problems that were more relevant to a student's life and less relevant to the state's standardized tests. But he met some resistance. And curiously, it came from some of his highest achieving math students. But I mean, like colleges in the long run, they don't, they look at your grades and like what you got in the class. They don't say, oh no, she had an understanding. It was just because of one little part. They see the letter grade and that's what really matters. Do you want Jim and Vince to train you guys to ace tests or would you rather Jim and Vince train you to be able to kind of apply stuff like this in your daily life or in your job later? Um. For me, it's... Please do. I want to ace the test. It's like college. That's how I get a job. Were you flabbergasted by that? No, but here's what's funny about that scene. The principal of that school, his name is Jim Calhoun, great guy, completely opened up his campus to us and said, look, we are trying to make some changes here. I would love for you to document this. Let me point you to the direction of some teachers that are really trying some new things. One of them was this teacher, Vince. And... We had been filming there off and on for about a year. And they said, look, we've got some students that have been through this new math curriculum and they have some real criticisms of it. We're going to organize a little roundtable discussion for you. Why don't you film it? And, and there's going to be some things that they like about it, some things they don't like, but we just think this will be interesting. So 
huge credit to this math teacher and to this principal who are willing to open up their doors Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. say, come film how we're really doing. And what was interesting was these kids who were very, very bright, their, their argument was, yes, we can understand how this new math curriculum would be more applicable to real life. And there were a number of things that they were doing. They were, they were giving kids projects, things to work on, and then giving them the math in order to solve these problems. The theory being, and one of them, the best is put it best by this woman named Linda Darling Hammond out of Stanford, who says, when you learn things in the service of this project of, of trying to solve a problem that you're passionately interested in, those skills or that knowledge get stored in a different part of your brain. If you're just memorizing math theories or how, how, to, how to do math problems just to do well on a test, your brain stores that in a part where it's more disposable. And, and, and that's why two or three weeks later, you're not able to pass the same test because you've just basically told your brain this stuff isn't that important. So when I sit down and I ask these kids just a very simple question, all right, so if you had a choice between a math curriculum that really helped you in your life, you could really apply it, it made your life easier, it allowed you to even excel in, in jobs down the line, would you take that or would you rather just have a math curriculum or math instruction that allowed you to, quote unquote, ace the test, whether that's a midterm or a final or an SAT or a college board? What would you rather have? And everyone, without even hesitating, the answer was easy. Just give us the curriculum that allows us to ace the test. Well, and it, the, you describe it later in a, in a brilliant way, I thought, when you said it's a gamble, it's a bet that teacher or that parents and students have to make that this game that we've set up is the right game to engage in the game of acing tests, getting good grades, getting into a good college, then getting into a good job, that that game is going to continue. And the, I think the central thesis, aside from this disconnect between schools and, and real life, the other central thesis you have is that that game is over that that game is ending because of automation and other threats to the way we've had, you know, middle-class jobs over our history. And so this new style of teaching that High Tech High and other places are experimenting with is actually a gamble that, that parents have to make. They have to be willing to bet on something else. Yeah, for me, this was the most profound moment of the film. It was it really shook me, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it afterwards because uh, while I'm... I agree that the game is over. The incentive system for students and for the parents who are trying to support them is still aligned with the old style. And it felt like a really deep conundrum to me. You know, there we don't spend a lot of time on it in the movie. But in 1983, as a country, mm-hmm. we faced this pivotal moment. And it was interesting. Ronald Reagan was somebody that was completely hands-off on education for the first three years of his term. He was... Let the states take care of it. Um, this, and, and, and largely, states controlled the curriculum state by state <clears throat> on their own without, with very little federal uh, imposition. Then there was a study that was done on, hey, let's just – we were concerned over um, the Japanese to overtaking us economically. And um, in, in 1983, a study was released, Nation at Risk, in which we were shown to be uh, – doing really poorly in school, largely based on poor international test scores. That was the metric. But it freaked everybody out. 
Uh, and there was a sentence that that still reverberates with me today, and a lot of people it gets quoted all the time. But it's along. I'll get. I'll miss it up. But it's something along the lines of that: if our enemies were to design a weapon uh, that they could unleash on America, you you couldn't have designed a more effective weapon than our school systems. And the point that this author was making and saying this, and it was the person that had authored the study, they were saying we have our kids that are spending hours and hours in school, largely doing nothing. And we are achieving, we're achieving two things that are causing us to be weakened as a nation. One, we're not using that time to develop critical thinkers, people that will build bridges, people that will uh, help save our manufacturing sector, um, you know, engineers, people that will start companies, et cetera. We're, we're wasting all that time, but we're also, we're going we're not only not producing those people, we're going in the opposite direction in which we're creating this general malaise. There is people that are becoming disaffected by mm. uh, academia. They, 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 they don't feel any place for them. Um, and, and after that study, there was a rush. There were all kinds of pioneers in education that were coming with solutions, many of them very progressive and out of the box, like, hey, we should try this and maybe we could do this. And there was real momentum behind them. But in the end, what ended up winning was, hey, somebody stepped forward and made this compelling argument to Congress and to President Reagan at the time. Uh, what we really need to do is we just need to raise everybody's test scores. That's what we need to focus on. And the most efficient way to do that is X, Y, and Z. This ultimately led, this was over years of debate and trying to get this done, it ultimately led to No Child Left Behind, which ultimately led to Race to the Top which leads us to where we are now, which is a nation of schools that are beholden largely to chasing higher and higher test scores at the expense of all of these other skills that would allow us to truly be competitive in the 21st century. I know I need to let you go. Um, I have two more questions. So what happened with your daughter? Well, she is here at High Tech High, and this might be a good segue into what we talked about, I think, sure. when we were just setting up our mics. But... Um, she still struggles with math, but I've noticed that when we engage her in this, her struggle is she wants to know, how do I apply this in my life? And the questions that she's beginning to answer are just, they're just smarter questions. They're better questions for somebody that I think is being prepared for the 21st century. They um, the kinds of math problems that she's being asked to wrestle with at home are problems that are measuring critical thought. They're measuring a level of engagement. Um, Is she more excited? Yeah. I mean, if you were to talk to my daughter that's for and my son, I both kids are in their school system. Um, they just love school. They cannot wait to get there. Uh, and um, I, I've just noticed when... I've come to observe their classrooms. I, I think to myself, I, I wish I would have had this when I was growing up. When when can people see this movie? I, I was I obviously had the benefit of getting to see it for this, but uh, is it going to go out on Netflix? Is it going to be coming to town? How's that work? Yeah. Right now, our executive producer, the person who very generously funded the film, Ted Dentersmith, is on a nationwide tour with the movie. Now, anybody who would like to go see it can log on to mltsfilm.org, and it will tell you where the film is playing. And any given week, it's playing in five or six different cities. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't want to wait for it to come to your city, 
you can call and request a screening. I believe right now, it's been a while because I've now moved on to another project in which I'm filming, but I believe the New York office is charging $350. You can host a screening and you can charge admission. So we know of a lot of school districts that are using that as a fundraiser. They buy the film for $350, they organize a screening, and then they've been charging $5 and $10 at the door and they've been you know, pocketing, I don't know how much, $1,200 or $1,000 and, um, and then having a great lively Q and A afterwards. Well, now I have to ask you one other question. Like, what are you working on now? Uh, there's there's really nothing. Well, I guess it still has something to do with education. We found this junior college in the deep South in Scuba, Mississippi, that is a pipeline to the NFL. Hmm. And so we spent a whole year in their classrooms, in their locker rooms, on their fields, uh, as they uh, go through uh, the course of a football season. Greg Whiteley, wonderful talking with you. I can't thank you enough for coming into the Voice of San Diego podcast studio. Uh, uh, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks, Greg. You bet. Well, that's Good Schools for All, the second episode. Thank you for joining us. You know, um, one thing you can do to really help us uh, is, well, there's two things. One is if you support this kind of work, um, you know, consider donating. Uh, go to voiceofsandiego.org slash donate. Uh, we have 2,000 members who make this possible, several uh, corporate sponsors and, and foundation supporters. Um, but uh, it's, the, it's really the members that make us uh, financially secure and, and independent. So please uh, consider that. If you uh, are interested in sponsoring um, this, please uh, give us a ring. If you have feedback or other things, uh, you can uh, send all of that to me at scott at voiceofsandiego.org. That's scott at voiceofsandiego.org. And if you want to just do the simplest, easiest thing to help us, uh, go to iTunes and um, provide a review, hopefully a good one, of the podcast uh, and rate it there, and that'll help us spread the word. This has been Good Schools for All, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.